Welcome to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So Liz. Yes. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. 2024. Here we are. Should be interesting. It's going to be crazy. So we have a very special guest today. And um, it's, well, I'll do my 1980s tie. Jacob, just so you know, we always were 80s fans. We're 80s kids. And so we always do some sort of nostalgia for the 80s. So our nostalgia today is that our guest, Jacob Chansley, was born in 1988. Is that correct? Oh, my God. I'm so old, Julie. 87. 87. Okay, Wikipedia has it wrong, just FYI. Yes, they do. Imagine that. Shocker. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Um, I know. Does that make you feel old? Let's see. I was in college. So there you go. I was in high school, but almost out of high school. So anyway, I don't want to talk about what I was doing. Um, I don't remember. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so Julie so introduced Jacob, our guest. Yes, Jacob, thank you for having uh, for uh, coming on with us. We are, of course, commemorating the three year anniversary of one of the worst domestic terror attacks ever in the history of our country, maybe even the world. Yeah. Which was the four-hour disturbance uh, on a Wednesday afternoon on public property known as the quote-unquote insurrection. And Jake, um, why don't you introduce yourself? Of course, you don't need that many. You were known as this quote-unquote QAnon shaman, but you sort of immediately became what your judge even said, the face of January 6th. So why don't you just introduce yourself, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, and then we'll just dig right in. Sure. Um, my name is Jake Angeli Chansley. I am a shamanic practitioner. I've practiced shamanism for over 10 years. Um, I've been dressing the way that I was dressed on January 6th for over 10 years. Um, I am a U.S. Navy veteran. I worked with kids in group homes for six and a half years. I am also an entrepreneur. I've written a couple of books and uh, I used to do YouTube videos, but obviously YouTube deplatformed me um, on more than one occasion uh, before and obviously after January 6th. Um, I have a Rumble channel. I have a website, uh, ForbiddenTruthAcademy.com. That's ForbiddenTruthAcademy.com. And I'm also running for Congress, Shaman for Congress, ShamanForCongress.com. That's what tell where are you running for Congress? You're in Arizona. Is that right? Yes, yes. I'm running for Congress in the 8th Congressional District here in Arizona. I am running as a libertarian. Okay. If you'd like me to go into more detail, I can. I I just – that's pretty much the synopsis. (laughs) I'm sorry. I accidentally muted my microphone. Jake, who has that seat right now? Debbie Lesko, and thankfully she has chosen to retire. Oh, she is retiring, and she is a Republican or allegedly a Republican. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say if that's what you want to call her. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they're they're dropping out like flies because they all know they're going to lose the next, you know, they're they're in a lot of them are in bad shape, especially the rhinos like her. So it's excellent. I'm glad to see. So it's basically it's an open seat. Uh, do you have a Republican? Is there a, a, I'm not following super close on this yet. Have is there a Republican who's announced? Oh, there's a bunch. Um, Abe Hamaday is running in the 8th Congressional District, even though he doesn't live here. Same thing with Blake Masters, even though he doesn't live here. Anthony Kern is running. Um, I think is uh, the Speaker Toma is also running. Um, there's a couple other Republicans, and there's an independent and a Democrat or two. But the reason why the Republicans are all like clamoring for the seat is because they think that it's basically a slam dunk, that as long as they get the nomination, they will get – the seat. But um, I have a thing or two to say about that. Well, tell us what your uh, before we get into the J6 stuff, tell us sort of what your platform is. I would hope kind of reforms to DOJ would be at the top of your list, but I won't speak for you. So what are what are you running on? Well, that's a part of the ideas that I have. But What I want to do is I want to transform the machine. I want to disassemble the corrupt apparatus that is allowing D.C. to destroy the country and rule our lives from the bureaucracy. So 
Um, the four things that I'm running on, the four promises that I have pledged to the 8th Congressional District and to the American people for that matter, is number one, first thing, a single bill voting law. Number two, amendment for term limits for congressmen and staff. Number three, a criminalization of lobbying. And number four is seven-figure fines, expulsion, and prosecution for all Congress members caught insider trading. And then once that stuff is accomplished, then yes, things like you know justice reform, prison reform, uh, getting rid of the Fed, um, you know, getting rid of antiquated laws, you know, disassembling the bureaucracy, defunding certain agencies, consolidating others. That that's all part of it too. That's I really like your idea about term limits for staffers. A lot of people, when they're talking about term limits, they think the problem is the elected official. But it's actually also or equally the staffers because elected officials spend most of their time dialing for dollars, calling up and getting donations. There's a lot of pressure on these elected officials to raise money for the um, NRCC, which is the National Republican Congressional Committee. So they're very involved in fundraising. The people doing the work are the staffers. And so. If you just have term limits for elected officials, you're going to have still have the institution um, or the what is it? The um, consensus like the institutional consensus or this sort of deep state unelected bureaucrats that are very powerful and running things. So it's really good that you're pointing out that staffers also need to have term limits. Um, I like so I like that's a good, good way of looking at it. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, is if you don't understand what the real problem is, you're not going to be able to create a solution. And what a lot of people don't know is that in some cases, not all, but in some cases, the staffers that are actually getting paid more than the congressmen. The staffers are the ones that write the quote unquote bills. Yeah. So they're the ones that are writing these 2,000, 3,000 page bills. If not them, then it's the corporations. Yeah. yeah, the lobbyists. Exactly. So, and, and the congressman is just the front person for all of these things to get pushed through they half the time they don't even read the bill oh no they never read the bill half the time that we would be lucky if it were half the time they read the bill <laughs> they do not read the bill almost ever because these bills are like thousands of pages long they have no idea and nobody is capable of reading that much in the short time that they're given the bill from when they have to vote for it i mean it's it's a it's a racket it's a joke. I mean, who know we don't like literally when Nancy Pelosi said we needed to pass Obamacare to find out what was in it, she wasn't joking. I mean, people thought that was a joke and it was like a punchline that we still use today. But the fact is that that's right. We don't know what's in any of these bills until someone has the time to read it. It's shameful. Well, and so that's, that's and that's why that's why single bill voting is the first thing that I'm going to do. Absolutely. Because then that means that they can't create these two, three thousand omnibus bill, page omnibus bills, where they are plugging a bunch of earmarks and pork belly spending into the bill. Well, and and they they will have 24 to 48 hours to read what two to three thousand pages. Give me a break. So if you have a single bill voting law, then that means that okay, this bill is going to be 20 to 50 pages. And guess what? Most people can read 20 to 50 pages in about 24 to 48 hours. So there's no excuse for the congressman not to read the bill after that. Yeah, they don't like single issue bills because also they don't want to be held account to account. It's much easier if they say, well, I voted for the omnibus because we had to give food to the troops rather than a single issue that is they are then held accountable for voting for or against a very specific thing. I mean, it's it's actually there to, quote, protect them. And this is why the Speaker of the House goes along with it. It protects the incumbents from ever being held to account for taking a vote. I mean, it, it's it's a travesty. So I'm sorry. Go ahead, Julie. No, <clears throat> Jacob, I think, um, you know, I followed your case from the very beginning. And I think what really struck me when I heard you speak at your sentencing hearing before Judge Royce Lambert uh, and we'll talk to how you got to that point. I believe that the sentencing hearing was November of 2021. Yes. And what struck me is it was really the first time I had heard you speak. I know you had given interviews early on, but um, 
you're so intelligent and informed uh, and obviously very passionate about the country. And I think even Judge Lamberth um, was very impressed with the way that you were talking uh, about, you know, why you went to the Capitol and your concerns for the country. So I'm not totally surprised to hear you lay out this very specific agenda, but um, I just wanted to say for people who have only seen your photo, I found you to be find you to be very thoughtful and passionate about the country and a very clear view of where you would like to see the country go. And it, I'm I'm assuming that's really what prompted you to go to the Capitol on January 6th. Well, yes, that's part of it. Um, I chose to go to Washington, D.C. on both December 12th for the second MAGA Million March and on January 6th for largely spiritual reasons. Um, Washington, D.C. is built on what are called ley lines, electromagnetic ley lines that run around the earth and all the way down to the core and obviously as well as on top of the crust of the planet. And it's these ley lines and where they converge, where they cross, that the ancient pyramids, obelisks, medicine wheels and ancient temples were built. And Washington, D.C. is no exception. All of the buildings, the uh, Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, the Congress building, the, the Capitol, the White House, the Pentagon, the Supreme Court, they're all built on electromagnetic ley lines. And in this way, they're kind of like temples of sorts. So by going to D.C., like my thinking was, if there's going to be a million people assembled on the ley lines, then as a shamanic practitioner, it is my shamanic duty to go down to D.C. and ensure that the highest possible frequencies are plugged into the electromagnetic grid system, frequencies of peace, love, harmony, etc. And uh, that was largely my first motivation. But then, yes, there's other things like, you know, one of the things about the founding of our country is that the founders talked about a long string of abuses that were not addressed by the crown. And they pointed to several things in like the Declaration of Independence where they say, this is the good reason that we have for doing what it is that we're doing. And if we look at the current state of America and the way that over decades, several decades, there have been a long string of abuses where our federal government has abused the American people uh, and lied to us. They've lied to us. They've stolen money from us. They've created unconstitutional laws. They've done everything they can to circumvent the Constitution and try to get us to hand over our rights. And th this long string of abuses must be addressed. What um, explain a little bit what shamanism is in uh, just for people. I don't I'm I'm not sure what it is myself, but um what does that involve? Well, shamanism is the oldest religion on the planet. It's actually the first religion. And if you look at the basic tenets of shamanism, it is actually the foundation of all religions across the planet. Now, let's start with the word shaman and what it means and where it comes from. Uh, the term shaman is a Siberian or Mongolian term, and it simply means the one who knows. So a man or a woman can be a shaman. Now, anthropologists have chosen to use that term shaman or shamanism to kind of paint every indigenous culture across the planet that believes in similar tenets with the same brush. Now, when I'm when I'm talking about shamanism and how it relates to indigenous philosophy, we have to talk about the basic fundamental core tenets of shamanism and then how that is the foundation for all religions. So all shamanic cultures believe, number one, in like God or like a unifying field of energetic, uh, an energetic source, a single omnipresent spirit that permeates all life, all the universe with self-awareness. Secondly, they also all believe in the notion of a spirit world and the idea that there's positive and negative spirits in the spirit world. 
Uh, third, they all believe in the power of prayer and meditation or trance states that allow them to get in touch with God and allow them to perceive the spirit world more accurately. Number four, they all believe in song and dance, singing and drumming as a means of getting into a altered state or as a means of prayer and a way of banishing evil spirits and uh, inviting positive angelic ones or uh, getting in touch with God. They also all believe in the idea of sacraments and the idea that they're in the ecosystem is sacramental plants for healing or for things like, um, you know, getting closer to God or banishing evil spirits, etc. They also all believe in the the truth of healing and in healing the body. A lot of the time, for the most part, the shaman is a healer. And then lastly, all shamanic cultures believe in what are called ordeals and the idea that the shaman will go through or a group of people in the tribe will go through an ordeal. They'll go through some prolonged process of ceremonial suffering. And in doing so, they actually uh, avoid negative timelines and create positive ones. When I say negative timelines, what I mean is like things like famine or drought, things like disease striking the tribe, or things like war or chaos or pain and, and destruction coming to the tribe. So by going through the ordeal, they avoid all those things and then they get abundance of food and abundance of rain. There's no disease in the tribe. There's no war. There's peace, etc. So if you look at all religions on the planet, they all believe the basic floor, uh, uh, the basic fundamental core tenets of shamanism. And they're all kind of different tongues describing the same thing. And they all kind of have the same basic foundation for what it is that their religious beliefs are. So I think it's fair to say um, that you're a man of peace. Uh, you're there, as you explained, you went to Washington for reasons to, I mean, to sum up <laughs> in common jargon, just to like send good vibes. Um, so then explain what happened on January 6th. I mean, I got video of you a few months after January 6th, someone had sent to me where you were inside the Capitol. You were talking with Capitol police officers, including, I believe his name is Officer Robichaud, uh, who then sort of followed you around, followed you into the Senate gallery. But explain how you got there that day, um, you know, what you picked up that day. Um, I know you took a lot of photographs. I think Nancy Pelosi's son-in-law was one of them. So just kind of walk us through, you know, what what happened that day, what you saw and, you know, your your involvement that led to really this horrific, uh, torturous legal proceeding for you. Well, to start, actually, I was following Officer Robichaud around, not vice versa. I volunteered to help the police when I saw that there were people in the Senate. And I walked up to him and, and told him, hey, there's people in the Senate. If you want, I can help you, you know, stop vandalism, violence, stop theft and help you clear the building. And he, he was like, yeah, come on, let's go. Um, so, yes, I was there as an agent of peace and harmony. What I saw on that day was over a million patriotic Americans assembled in D.C. to have our grievances addressed by the government. And I was there for Trump's speech at the Ellipse. And to be perfectly honest with you, it was rather repetitive and eventually got kind of boring. So um, as people were making their way down to the Capitol, I was like, oh, I guess I guess people are going to the Capitol. I guess this is what we're doing. And so I started to walk down to the Capitol. By the time I got there, there was already at least a couple of thousand people there. And I climbed the scaffolding uh, or like the tower thing there to get a look at what was going on below me because things were kind of getting a little hectic. The police were um, shooting tear gas and concussion grenades into the crowd and people started getting upset because it was a peaceful crowd. And once the police really started amping up the amount of tear gas and concussion grenades that were shooting into the crowd, that was when all hell broke loose. And... Um, I saw what was happening outside the building, which 
you know, anybody that says that there wasn't chaos or violence outside the building is not telling the truth. There was most certainly chaos and violence outside the building. Was it a response to the use of excessive or unnecessary force? Quite possibly, I would say so. But that doesn't change the fact that it was occurring. And then when Jacob, do you um, mind? If they, I, do I mind? Do you mind if I interrupt you really quick? Because I sure. think I think that's one. I think it is the most underreported and covered up aspects of January 6th is what Capitol Police and D.C. Metro Police did outside to protesters or just demonstrators or people just kind of standing there that really prompted a lot of the confrontations uh, that we later saw in cherry picked clips and photographs between protesters and police. So as you approached, and of course we have a lot of this video now about you saw police doing um, and how the crowd reacted. Can you just give a little bit more color to that uh, for, for our listeners? Sure. Um, so um, my approach to the building, everything was fine. Um, it was when I arrived in front of the Capitol that I kind of saw what was happening in the crowd. There were some people like at the front of the barricades that were like yelling at the cops. Um, one guy, I think, even like threw a water bottle and I turned around and told him to knock that shit off. Um, I, there was there was very, very few people that were combative with the police at the barricades. So the excuse that they are trying to use in order to to save face that they they had to throw the concussion grenades or the tear gas or shoot people with rubber bullets. Their excuses are they're crap. There's no there was no need for that. Um, and. When they really amped up that method of quote unquote trying to control the crowd that was when everything went nuts and i mean if they if if donald trump's offer to send 10 to 20,000 national guard to the capitol would have just been taken up you know or if chief sund had gotten the proper intelligence and it wasn't suppressed by yogananda pitman the pentagon or the fbi then he would have gotten the national guard to guard the capitol but i think that was antithetical to the deep state's plan for the setup and the psyop that ensued afterward um i just want to uh, go back to something you said that's really important, and I, I like to mention this every time we talk about January 6th on our podcast. When you said when you got there, there were already thousands of people outside the Capitol. So I like to remind everybody there were always events scheduled to be held outside the Capitol and that there were per permits granted for those events. The media likes to pretend that people just swarm the Capitol, un, you know, out of the blue. No, people were there because there were events planned. There were speakers booked and ready to go and lined up. So I just like to remind everybody that that is how that that is what happened outside the Capitol. There was always going to be an event. The government knew there was an event. The Park Services approved the events. Permits were pulled for the events and approved. So. Well, and, and what's also interesting, what's also interesting, Liz, is that there were also permits that were given to uh, left wing protests, one right outside the Capitol called You're Fired, where the left wing was basically trying to host a protest event for uh, against Donald Trump ca called the You're Fired Donald Trump. Um, so there were permits given to both the left and the right when it comes to protests on that day. And uh, one of them was uh, right outside the Capitol building on January 6th. That's right. And we do know now from documentation, I think from U.S. Park Police, that there were permits, I believe at least three, maybe four, left-wing demonstrations that were planned for the 5th and the 6th. And I believe one of them was BLM Antifa-related. So to your point, yes, it, and Liz, it's really good that you keep reminding people about that, which is why Donald Trump's plan after his speech at the Ellipse was to go to the Capitol, because there were these other rallies scheduled on Capitol grounds by groups supporting him, um, and why he apparently was was very upset that 
they diverted him back to the White House. So I think that is important to note that there were permits allowed that, I mean, there's a whole flyer that's now in evidence that talks about the various locations, you know, prayer rallies, prayer vigils, et cetera, on the 5th and the 6th. So it's not like anyone was, to your point, Jay, caught caught by surprise because we know the intelligence and law enforcement agencies had all of this. Um, so then, so you saw the police misconduct and then you entered through the Senate wing door, correct? Like shortly after the first physical breach of the building. Um, and, and, you know, talk about what happened there and what prompted you to, to go inside and then your interactions with people like Officer Robichaud and other Capitol Police. Sure. So I was there at the initial breach and I saw what was being done outside the building. And I thought to myself, my God, you know, if this is what they're doing outside the building, we cannot have that going on inside for sure. We cannot have that. That's very bad juju. It's very bad energy, very bad vibes. And because the Capitol building is built on ley lines, it is kind of like a sacred temple of sorts. Um, so my thinking at the time was as people are flooding in the building, like, oh, oh, my God, you know. We can't have what's going on outside, inside. And when I entered the building, it was with the purest of intent to stop vandalism, violence, theft, and to ensure the safety of police and Congress members. That was my intention. And that is reflected in uh, the first 30 seconds of my entering the building. I stopped somebody from stealing. And that's on video, by the way. Now, they was just muffins from a break room but it's the principle of the matter i saw somebody trying to steal and i stopped them from stealing then from there i uh, made my way up to the um like the foyer for the senate and that was where some of these iconic photos with uh, myself and other protesters are talking with police i believe officer robichaud was one of those police and um then I made my way into the upper terrace of the Senate itself. I sang my shamanic song. And um, what's interesting is that's also where one of the iconic photos comes from as well. Uh, at the climax of my shamanic song is when they take that snapshot of the, the close-up, uh, the headshot um, of me, uh, what looks like I'm screaming. I'm actually singing. And uh, that was when I saw the people in the Senate chamber. On the, on, the, on the floor of the Senate. And that's when I went up to the uh, Officer Robichaud and some of the other Capitol Police and said, hey, there's people in the Senate, man. Like, if you want, I can help you guys, you know, make sure there's no violence or vandalism or theft. I can help you clear the building. And they saw my megaphone and they're like, yeah, come on, let's go. So that's why we were going from locked door to locked door looking for an entrance into the Senate chamber. And... Um, when I went into the Senate chamber, I sat in the vice president's chair so I could get an overview of the whole room and make sure there was no vandalism or violence or theft. Um, I also, you know, just full disclosure, that I that was when I wrote the note, it's only a matter of time, justice is coming, which was not in any way, shape or form intended to be a threat in spite of the fact that that's what the Mockingbird media and the government said. It was not intended to be a threat whatsoever. Um and then shortly thereafter, I said a prayer and then we all left I, as I was leaving the as we were all leaving. I was on my megaphone saying, God bless the men and women in blue. We love you guys. Thank you for all that you do. Um, made our way out of the building. And then um, it was sh shortly thereafter that those two photos that are were circulating around, one with uh, Sergei Dubinin. He did a selfie with him and myself. I didn't know who he was. Look, I. And same thing with Nancy Pelosi's son-in-law. I didn't know who these people were. They, they were just a face in the crowd, one of hundreds of people that day that were like, hey, can I get a selfie? Hey, can I get a photo? And so if you look at those photos, it, I'm posing for a photo. My, my tongue is out hanging out of my mouth or, you know, I'm like, like holding my mouth open like I'm saying, yeah, you know, and um, I do that whenever I'm taking a photo with somebody that I don't know because it's my way of protecting myself and like showing like I'm posing for a photo. I don't know this person. Sergei Dubinin was a Ukrainian spy. Little did I know. 
And that's something that the FBI confirmed and said to me in one of my interrogations with them. And uh, I didn't know that was Nancy Pelosi's son-in-law. I had no idea. So that's that. And then shortly after all that, um, well, by the time I had come out of the building, I had already gone viral. I had people coming up to me, showing me on their phone. They're like, dude, you're all over Twitter. You, you're, you're, you went viral. You're all over the planet. And I was like, well, that's a trip. And then shortly thereafter is when uh, Donald Trump put out his tweet telling everybody to go home. So I walked up to the location um, on the backside of the Capitol where people were still trying to break in the building, and I got in the way. And I told everybody, look, stop. Donald Trump said to go home. And I played his tweet, uh, his video tweet on my megaphone. I told everybody to stop, told everybody to go home, said, you know, you, this is done. We're, this is done. We're over. It's, it's over. Just stop. Just go home. And then after that is when I left and uh, walked back to the car. Jake, I think my proudest tweet ever on January 6th, and I know Liz will recall this because I think it was like me, Liz and Lee Smith who were mocking the shit out of January 6th. Like everyone's like, oh, my God, this is an attack on our democracy. And we're like, what is I think I tweeted that picture of you in the Senate chamber. And I said, I would rather have this guy running Congress than pretty much anyone else who was yes, there. You did. Yeah, we were. We, we did a show on January 7th, right? So before the narratives were solidified, although they were trying pretty early on to like get the narrative that these unarmed people, which, and Julie will, as my witness, I said on January, well, we Julie and I were watching this stuff online together as it happened. And I said, I guarantee you, Julie, not a single person in the Capitol brought a weapon. Like there's no fire. You did. Yep. I did. And that is as God is my witness and Julie. Yep. I said, I guarantee you there is not a single firearm in that Capitol. And I was right to the And This was, again, 24 hours, less than 24 hours after because I could we could see what was going on a million miles away. Exactly how this was going to be framed. So I just right. need to take my victory lap. Yes, you should. And Liz, you were actually the first person on record to say on our podcast on the 7th with Lee Smith, you were like, it's almost like they wanted it to happen. Yep. That's right. Genius. Thank you. Um, so, yep. Jacob, then your legal torture began. Now, I want to pivot just quickly to the Ray Epps um, sentencing because it, it, sentencing memo that came out on Wednesday. The DOJ claims that they are were going light on Ray Epps. Of course, if anyone should be charged with obstruction of an official proceeding, which was the felony you were indicted on, I think, Jake, you were the first indictment, if I'm not incorrect. Yes, I, I believe that is the case. Yes, I, I believe that. Well, that's because when the FBI was looking for me, I, my, my mom told me, hey, the, the FBI is looking for you. I called the FBI, <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah. okay, well, you guys are looking for info on me. I'll call you. I'll give you whatever you want to know. What do you want to know? And then, so I set up a, a meeting with the FBI on January 9th here in the uh, FBI field office in Phoenix. And uh, they told me they weren't going to arrest me. And I asked them, I said, are you going to arrest me? Just tell me. And I, you know, I'll still show up. I just want to know if you're going to arrest me. And they said, no, we don't see a reason to arrest you. We just want to talk. And because it was just misdemeanors at the time, I figured, well, the FBI doesn't waste their time on misdemeanors, so I'm probably all right. And uh, when I arrived, they, they arrested me like pretty much right there. Um, and yes, I, I believe I was the first indicted. Do you think that you had been surveilled by the FBI before January 6th? Because your case went so quickly. I think your indictment was the 5th. I mean, the grand jury was impaneled on the 8th. They were ready to go, of course, too. I think you were indicted by the grand jury. Was it the 15th? Yeah, something like that. It was like it was like a couple of days after I was arrested. Yeah, I'm looking that up. You were indicted on the 11th. So you were the first indictment. So this, the great trace impaneled on the 8th, they have a case ready to go, quote unquote evidence. You had turned yourself in basically to the FBI. I think there's video of you speaking with someone, um, but you didn't get the Ray Epps treatment. So going back to the sentencing memo, he's charged with one misdemeanor. They're asking for six months in jail. 
But one of the caveats from the Department of Justice's sentencing memo, why they went light on apps is because he cooperated with the FBI early. But you did, too. Yes. Yeah, well, and they also are trying to say that he, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that he was trying to de-escalate things. You know, if anybody was cooperating with the government as far as, you know, turning themselves in or giving a statement, if anybody was trying to de-escalate, I mean, the evidence is there that I was doing just that. <laughs> you know right. what I'm saying? Right. But the thing is, the thing is, and this is why I think they chose to use my image as the quote-unquote poster child or poster boy of the day, is that outside of the building there was most certainly violence and chaos however inside the building there was none none really to speak of and um when the mockingbird media looked at the scenario the scenario i think that they realized well we don't have any triggering images from inside the building the way that we have outside, except we got this guy in the horns and the face paint looking like he's screaming, you know, a battle cry. They needed that image, which is a shocking image, inside the building to go with their shocking image outside the building. And so this is how the Mockingbird media works, is they use shocking images along with shocking verbiage. So shock, for their shock and awe campaign, they use trigger words and trigger images that stimulate emotional and instinctual responses in the subconscious mind and therefore control a person's conscious perception of reality. So they needed my image inside the building to concretize that shock and awe campaign and create the illusion that what happened outside the building also happened inside. So that's why they wouldn't give me the, the Ray Epps treatment because they, they had to have me be the face. They had to make an example out of me in spite of the fact that I was actually trying to help the police. I was, I was actually trying to deescalate and um, I contacted the FBI and I did everything that I could to, to do things right. The plan was always to make the crowd look like a bunch of deranged maniacs that were out of control because ultimately they want the, these government agencies want to have more power to crack down on citizens. And in order to do that, they need to scare the public so that the public goes along with their extra powers. They say, oh, well, we have terrorists. We need pa power to stop the crazy terrorists. So the intent was always to frame these to, to frame the people there on January 6th as deranged lunatics. That's why there was very little talk about Ashley Babbitt um, getting shot by, you know, a Secret Service agent or um, a, very little footage of pe people walking between the ropes respectfully or taking selfies with police, you know, inside the Capitol or just anything that showed order. So you're definitely right about that. That was always the intent. And even before January 6th, that is how the media characterized Trump supporters in general, as lunatics, as crazy people. They've been repeatedly dehumanizing Trump supporters. They gave a pass to all kinds of violence that happened. Remember, even before January 6th, at campaign events, there was violence. Right. There would be the left would show up and they'd beat people. You know, they were beating people up. Somebody would get punched in the face if they had a MAGA hat on and a Whataburger in Texas. I mean, there was always this violence against Trump supporters that was cultivated by the media to give because they want the public to think that, yes, these people are not human. They're subhuman. They shouldn't be treated with you know, like you would treat a normal person. They shouldn't be afforded, you know, civil liberties. And they wanted people to think that they were just maniacs. So I agree with you. I've right. been saying that for years. Well, and, and also let us not forget Rosalind Boylan and, and the way that she yeah. was beaten while she was unconscious yep. and later yep. died. They tried to cover that up and say that it was an overdose from prescription medication. Let's not also forget that the Mockingbird media said that four police officers died that day, which did not happen. They said Officer Sicknick died that day because he got hit in the head with the fire extinguisher. That did not happen. So the media was lying from the very get-go when it comes to the narrative of J6. And they covered up 
the violence that took place for over 200 days across the country on behalf of BLM and Antifa. In many cases, the rioters were actually being bused across the country, crossing state lines to riot. So that is a felony. And 90 to 95 percent of the quote unquote protesters, rioters, uh, had their um, charges, their federal charges dropped by the DOJ. The, all of this stuff is indicative of systemic corruption. Mm-hmm. And I that's part of why I'm running for Congress is to you know stop that systemic from uh, corruption from perpetuating. And, you know, another thing, there's such a long list of things the media lied about initially and continues to lie about is right out of the box saying that Antifa was not involved. And I'll be honest, I didn't cover a lot of Antifa. I didn't do a lot of digging when my book was published now almost two years ago. I didn't really address the Antifa involvement. But now we have body cam footage from undercover D.C. Metro police who expressly tell Another undercover agent, one of them says to the officer, there's Antifa all over the place. And the undercover officer says, yeah, that's why we're here. And then you can clearly see Antifa figures. They don't try to hide who they are. They're not Trump supporters dressed up as Antifa. They're literal Antifa, little skinny guys all dressed in black block with, you know, their backpacks and scurrying around like like little rodents. And you could see them going in front of these undercover officers. So that is another, I think, ripe area for more investigation. I wish I had time to do it. But I do think that Congress, especially Representative Barry Loudermilk, the chairman of the uh, subcommittee on oversight for the House Administration Committee, I think that's going to be an area that they are going to finally examine because it's important for the public to get a full vetting of who is involved and what this intelligence is. Keep in mind, too, as you know, Jake, we haven't seen a lot of these intelligence reports. You know, we get snippets of it. We saw some of what the Capitol Police allegedly had, but none of these agencies are trustworthy. So if they were getting intelligence bulletins from the FBI or other law enforcement agencies saying, yes, BLM and Antifa, just like they've done across the country for the second half of 2020, And certainly in Washington in November and December of 2020, they are going to be there. They are going to be harassing, attacking people. They are going to be trying to break into the building. Um, We still haven't haven't seen that either. Well, and, you know, this is something that a lot of people don't really talk about, and it's rather unfortunate. But that is the intelligence suppression that took place from Yogananda Pittman that basically allowed January 6th to take place. Um, if you guys, I don't, I don't know if you've interviewed um, former Capitol Police Lieutenant Tarek Johnson, but he's a man that you guys should speak with because he was the one, he was the one that somebody put a MAGA hat on when he was outside uh, trying to calm the crowd down. Um, and he's a really good dude. I, I did a space with him. Um, it was like two and a half, almost three hours long. And he basically breaks down that Yogananda Pittman suppressed intelligence and did not allow it to get to Chief Sund. Also, Yogananda Pittman and the current Capitol Police chief, John Manger, both signed non-disclosure agreements about what it is that Capitol Police knew both before, during, and after. And just to let you know, Capitol Police is not subject to FOIA. And this is another thing, like – why is it that Speaker Johnson has not released all the January 6th footage like he said he was going to? Uh, you know, this man, he's he's such a puppet. He's such a puppet. He gives the public just uh, crumbs from the table. Here's some video footage that can kind of verify that, yeah, the whole thing was a setup. And, yeah, the, there were undercover police officers that claimed that they were Antifa in the crowd. Yeah, the police were shooting tear gas and concussion grenades into the crowd. Yeah, there was some guy that had his hands cuffed and the police pulled him aside and took the handcuffs off and gave one of the police officers a fist bump. Yeah, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff that just doesn't make sense. But uh, we're not going to release all the footage, um, even though that was what he promised to do. I think that 
when we talk about January 6th, there's a lot of people that say it was a Fed surrection, or there's people that say that it's a PSYOP. There's people that say that it was orchestrated. I like to say that it was a setup, and that's because the there's Metropolitan and Capitol Police that have said that. Tarek Johnson has said that. Other Metropolitan Police are on camera saying they, they set us up. Um, but it was a setup for both Capitol Police, Metropolitan Police, and the Trump supporters. And when I say a setup, what I mean is that intelligence was suppressed. Intelligence from the Pentagon that there were supposed to be uh, supposedly like over a dozen known terrorists that were in the crowd that day. Intelligence suppressed from Christopher Ray and the FBI um, the, about what they believed the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were intending to do. Intelligence suppressed by Yogananda Pittman, the Capitol Police intelligence officer. Um, all this stuff was not allowed to get to Chief Sund. And Chief Sund's emergency powers, his ability to invoke the National Guard at will was taken away from him a couple of weeks before January 6th by Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi. And that is very telling because then he had to ask for permission from Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell to invoke the National Guard. And when he did so through paperwork, he was told that it would be bad optics and there was no quote unquote evidence or a lack of evidence that it was necessary, which the intelligence the evidence was suppressed that it was. And Donald Trump offered 20,000 National Guard and, he, and it was refused. So they wanted that thing to happen. They wanted that to take place. And then once it did, the PSYOP ensued afterward. And the PSYOP was designed to obviously demonize Trump and his supporters and to do so in a way where legal precedent or, or legal action could and would be taken against people that were Trump supporters and against Donald Trump himself. And we're not just talking about people that were there on January 6th, you guys. There's a guy on Twitter called Alpha Warrior. This guy was over yep. 2,000 miles away when January 6th took place. And shortly after January 6th, the feds swatted his home and they came in and arrested him uh, on charges because of a single social media post. They left his infant child, four-month-old child, inside unsupervised for four hours, did not allow his parents to go in and get him, did not allow his parents to go in and check on him. The, the child was left alone for four hours while the feds searched this man's house, all because of a single social media post. So, and then there's we also know about, you know, the whole guy getting, you know, this doesn't relate to January 6th. But then there's that guy that's doing time because of a meme during 2016. Yeah. So it's clear that this was a setup and the psyop that ensued afterward was designed to paint Trump and his supporters as insurrectionists and, quote unquote, domestic terrorists or dom domestic extremists or as um Kyle Serafin and Stephen Friend like to talk about what they call agave, anti-government, anti-authority, violent mm -hmm. extremists. Yeah, and it's only accelerating. Joe Biden is going to commemorate the three-year anniversary of the quote-unquote insurrection at Valley Forge, of all places, this weekend. Um, he just keeps ratcheting up the comparisons between what happened at the Capitol, 9-11, the Oklahoma City bombing, and now Valley Forge, I guess he is supposed to be George Washington in this optics. I'm not really sure. So gross. So gross. You know what's funny about that, though, is that they seem to forget that the weather underground in the 70s literally yep. bombed the Capitol that's building. Right. <laughs> like, yes, that's you know, right. uh, and that's the left. That's the left right there. And they also seem to forget that, oh, didn't Obama like hire Bill Ayers, the like one of the founders of the weather underground to be in charge of education? Didn't he pardon Bill Ayers and then like hire him in his cabinet? I think so. <laughs> it's not that they forget. It's that they don't care. I mean, we think, oh, that's hypocrisy, but it really is hierarchy. It's the fact that they will use their power to do anything to increase their power and to control people. It's not about consistency or principles. They don't care really about domestic terrorists unless the domestic terrorists are interfering with their ability to amass power and exercise their power. Um, that is really what is going on here. I just want to. 
Well, yeah, and it, I, I, the saying goes, if the left didn't have double standards, they'd have no standards at all. <laughs> no, they don't care. I mean, you can't say that January 6th was a threat and then ignore everything that happened the summer before, where literally they burned a church and they breached the White House uh, border. The, and well, they breached they, the, yeah, I was going to say they breached the fence. They breached the fence. No, but that's very serious. I mean, they had to bring they had to put Trump down in the bunker, which, you know, wasn't about Trump. That's standard operating procedure for the civil service. So the secret I'm sorry, the Secret Service. So that is very serious. They do not mess around if you re- breach the, the fence. It's it, you know, because it only takes a couple seconds to, like, make a run for it. So that is very serious. That happened repeatedly. There were assaults repeatedly on federal agents outside the White House. They burned down the church, not to not even get into the attacks on all the federal buildings that have happened, not just in Portland, like we know, but there had been a big attack in, I think, in Pittsburgh or in Pennsylvania, in uh, Philly. In uh, Colorado. Colorado. Yeah, they've been doing that. So this idea that they're worried about domestic terrorists is just the pretense to clamp down on the Trump supporters or the people that have beliefs that they don't like or beliefs that interfere with their ability to amass power and control the public. Precisely. Exactly. I'm sorry, Jake. I think another big area of double standard is what people like you and others have gone through being political prisoners, being denied release, tormented. You were in solitary for, I think you said over 300 days before you were basically tormented. Ten and a half in, months. How, how many? Ten and a half months total. And they basically tormented you into accepting a plea deal on the fifteen twelve C two count on obstruction. Well, here's the here's the thing about the lawfare is that what the government does. First of all, the government has like endless resources and countless attorneys that do their bidding. Um, and what they do is they arrest people. They file a bunch of charges. They can charge you with pretty much anything. And we see like this whole thing with the 1512, the way that they're willing to bend the law and use the law and lawfare as a means of leveling charges at people. And then what the government will do is they'll move in after they've leveled all these charges at you and they show you this really large number of the possible years of maximum sentence that you're facing if you go to trial. And they say, well, you know, if you go to trial, basically everybody knows if you go to trial, they throw the book at you. So they'll say, okay, well, you have all these charges. If you go to trial, this is the amount of time that you're looking at. But if you plead guilty to this or this charge or this and this charge, then we'll drop all of these other charges and you'll get less time. So that is not what our founders had in mind when they you know, created the United States of America. Now, to a certain extent, I understand why the DOJ does this, because, look, when I was in prison, I met very real, unrepentant, relentless criminals. Okay, and these individuals were guilty. They every and I did not meet a single person in federal prison that was not guilty of something. And in some cases, the people that were uh, that were in there told me themselves that if the government actually knew what they were really doing, they would have gotten way more time than they got. (laughs) But then there's also other people that the government chose to just slam against the wall and give way more time than they should have gotten. So in this way, the justice system is about numbers. It's about getting and gaining convictions. This is why the government has a 98% guilty plea rate because Mm -hmm. of the way it is that they strategically use the law and the system to get people to plead guilty. But they're also incentivized. I think people don't realize that their jobs, their their job status is dependent on their ability to get convictions. In other words, the more cases that they bring to trial, the more likely they are to get promoted or to get pay raises. I mean, that's how you ascend in the DOJ is by successfully and in the FBI, I might add. I have a friend. I know someone, let's just say, who works for the FBI and um, he was telling me that he had to change areas of where he worked because 
they weren't the they weren't letting him bring his cases to a trial, which meant that it was he couldn't advance. So there it's also it, they're also incentivized prosecuting people. And again, it's an uneven it's always an uneven prosecution because the government has unlimited resources and their targets are just regular people who don't have, um, you know, a big white shoe law firm on retainer to come in and handle it. They don't have a million dollars at least to launch a defense with like where you go to trial and you don't plead. So that also incentivizes the government to bring charges against people. It's like fish in a barrel, shooting fish in a barrel. Right. And this is actually something that Stephen Friend and uh, Kyle Serafin talk about, where they talk about how the FBI is intentionally um, lowering the bar so that they can go after people and that they are basically fudging the numbers based on the way that they choose to uh, do investigations or to arrest people when normally they would arrest like, for example, not uh, they gave an example in the space I did with them um, where there was nine people that were involved in the same crime. And instead of arresting them all in nine in one day, what they did is they parceled it out one a day so that they could create the illusion that there were nine arrests made in the protection of the homeland, um, it, nine individual quote unquote domestic terrorist arrests that were made when in fact it was just nine people of the same case that were parceled out over nine days. And so this is how they artificially inflate the numbers. They lower the bar so that they can get more and more money. And yes, there are quotas. And another thing that they talked about was the fact that the managerial staff or, or the supervisors that are in charge of a lot of these uh, departments within the FBI, most of the time they don't know what it is that they're doing, what it is that they're talking about. They don't understand like – for example, Stephen Friend was um, in charge of reservations and, or a reservation, and he had to educate his supervisor who had no idea how the reservation uh, worked or you know, how investigations were done on the reservation, how life on the reservation was. He had to educate his supervisor on what all that was about, and this is something that's pervasive throughout the bureaucracy is that you don't – you don't advance in the bureaucracy unless you do the bidding of big government. If you are saying no to bad ideas, then you're not going to move up. You get you move up – and this goes for the military too. You go up because you follow orders. You, you get promoted because you follow orders, you don't ask questions, and you never say no to a bad idea. <clears throat> Jacob, before um, we let you go, and I could – have you on for another hour. Just fascinating conversation. Um, what are your thoughts about the Supreme Court potentially overturning the DOJ's abuse of the 1512C2 obstruction count that you pleaded to? If they do overturn the appellate court that barely upheld that charge for J6ers, what sort of legal recourse do you have or others have Um you know, to vacate that plea or, or conviction. Is there anything you guys can do? Have you talked to your attorney about that? What What would be the next steps? Well, first of all, let's talk about the 1512 charge. That was created during the Enron scandal because there were individuals within the corporate structure of Enron that were like shredding documents and tax forms and stuff like that. And that was considered obstruction of the official proceeding of the government, which it was. I mean, they, they were literally destroying the documentation that was going to convict them. Uh, that being said, Obviously, there was a bending of the law for the 1512 charge to be leveled against January 6ers. But this isn't the first time the DOJ has done something like that, because as as you know, we were saying, it's about getting convictions. It's not about real justice. So I think um, it's a necessary move to be made. We really need to look and examine as to whether or not this charge is even applicable. And I don't believe that it is. But uh, let's hope that the Supreme Court does the right thing. It wouldn't be the 
there's been other cases where the Supreme Court has definitely fumbled the ball, uh, but that's neither here nor there. Let's hope that not all institutions and checks and balances within the system are corrupt. Regarding what the ramifications would be, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't fully know. Um, if the Supreme Court rules that it is not applicable, then I think what would end up happening is that there would be a lot of resentencing. I'm actually doing a space tonight with um, my lawyer, Bill Shipley, and crypto lawyer, where we're going to kind of explain uh, – where they're going to explain and we're going to talk about what the ramifications are, the legal ramifications for the Supreme Court taking this up. And if they do decide that this is not applicable, what it is that uh, would take place afterward. It's my hope that they, like I say, do the right thing and, uh, you know, look at the law and say, well, this doesn't work. This isn't applicable. And then if that's the case, then I think a lot of people would end up uh, having to go back to the court and um, whether it's, you know, guilty pleas or it's, um, you know, charges being dropped for people that have not been charged. I mean, people that have not gone to trial or not pled guilty. Um, and then there might be some resentencing. Well, I know that judges already, including the chief judge, the new chief judge, James Bosberg, has already put off sentencing defendants who are awaiting their prison, you know, their sentence on that conviction, whether it was a trial conviction or, or a plea deal. So they're already delaying sentences. I know that there are some defense attorneys who are asking for the release of people who are now sitting in jail on that felony conviction alone, uh, including a 60-year-old woman from Pennsylvania who was sent to a federal prison in Philadelphia instead of a woman's uh, minimum security camp. And so she's suffering terribly, as you can imagine, just for a conviction sentenced to 14 months in jail on that 1512 C2. So you're already seeing a lot of court activity. If the Supreme Court does come back, smacks down this appellate ruling, and then by extension, the DOJ and all of these judges, except for one who upheld that count in J6 cases, um, who knows what, what's going to happen. So that space should be should be interesting to listen to. Well, and let's also not forget that the it will also have ramifications for Trump That's right. and Trump's proceedings as well. So there's there's a lot of precedent to be set here, and this is and this is the beautiful part about our system is that. Assuming that not all the checks and balances are corrupt, which that's part of what the deep state is, is it's not the whole government being corrupt. It's the checks and balances portions of the system being corrupt and therefore circumvented to centralized power. If the system works the way that it's supposed to, if one branch of the government does something that is unconstitutional, then it's up to the other branches or at least the Supreme Court in this case to say, hey, that's not legally uh, – allowed that's that's not constitutional that is not right you can't do that and then this is how the uh the rollout of tyranny is is halted and kept in check so let's hope that the checks and balances is uh is still something that we can believe in liz do you have anything else before we wrap up this went so fast i know it did no i think i'm good um it's been very interesting so julie are we going to be here next week we are going to be here next okay, week. Okay, yes. excellent. Jacob, well, where thank can you. people find you and oh, yeah. support your campaign and find out more about you? So where tell everybody all of your important uh, points of contact. Sure, thank you. Uh, people can follow me on X or Twitter at, at America Shaman. That's America Shaman, at America Shaman on X or Twitter. They can also um, go to my website, Forbidden truthacademy.com that's forbidden truthacademy.com where we have all sorts of free courses free podcasts you can listen to free interviews at this point dozens of hours of free content because i don't believe that we should charge people for hearing the truth there's also merchandise that people can purchase and you can also buy my book one mind at a time a deep state of illusion by jacob chance or by jacob angeli that is on my website um, you can also go to my shaman for Congress. That's shaman, F-O-R, 
congress.com and at shamanforcongress.com you can find a bunch of interviews that i've done that are political you can also find my campaign platform the promises that i'm making why it is that it's so important you can find out how you can help because i am not taking uh campaign donations um i i believe big money is a big problem in american politics and i want my campaign to be antithetical to every problem that we have in american politics um, you can also go to uh, my Rumble account, uh, Yellowstone Wolf AZ. That's Yellowstone Wolf AZ. It's all one word, Yellowstone Wolf AZ. You can also go to my Forbidden Truth podcast on Rumble. That's Forbidden Truth podcast on Rumble. And um, the Occult Apocalypse show. Uh, there's another thing I have on Rumble as well, where we lift the veil on everything occult, hence the name uh, Occult Apocalypse. Um, so the Occult Apocalypse show on Rumble. And oh, yeah, um, on X or Twitter, you can also follow my uh, campaign uh, X platform. Um, that is at Shaman4, F -O, uh, F, uh, Shaman4, the number four, Congress, that Shaman4, the number four, Congress at Shaman for Congress on X or Twitter. If you want to do that, you can do that. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to Happy Hour. We will be here next week. Um, if you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We're also on Spotify and rate us at five stars. Have a lovely weekend and tune in next week. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week. Peace.